right, you'll want to get out your message outline so you can follow along. We have a large passage uh, today and uh, less time, so you'll have to listen quickly this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, the entire chapter, and uh, we will go through it as we go. So let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this is your word, and as always, we need it. We need to be reminded of the greatness of the gospel, the power of the cross, and the glory of Christ. We need to know the sufficiency of your word for all the problems of our lives. We need to know the wisdom of your word for all the problems of our lives. Speak to us by the power of your spirit that we might be people who listen to you and build our lives and build our church on Christ, the only sure foundation. Thank you that 1 Corinthians points us to our Redeemer. We need the redemption he offers. Bring us to the cross. Bring us the grace of repentance. Soften our hard hearts. Have mercy on us and build us up in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And so we pray by the power of the Holy Spirit. Help us see Jesus. Amen. Amen. Oh, got brighter. Um, how many of you have been to the Washington Monument? All right, most of you. Very good. You know, when you live in this area for a while, you kind of slow down on visiting all the monuments and the museums and all the good stuff in D.C. And it becomes something to do when company comes to visit. And, uh, but after the Virginia earthquake of 2011, the Washington Monument was closed for several years uh, due to a number of cracks that developed after the earthquake. And uh, $15 million later, it was reopened, uh, only to be closed again this year for a complete overhaul of the elevator system. Now, this isn't the only time the Washington Monument has had issues. It almost didn't open at all. The whole project nearly ended in disaster when it was first being built. Uh, it was supposed to be, at the time uh, anyway, the tallest stone obelisk in the world, 600 feet tall. And it was supposed to have a flat top with a statue of Washington riding a horse at the pinnacle. Uh, obviously, there is no horse uh, at the top, and the National Park Service lists its height at 555 feet. So what happened? Well, problems developed in the initial building phase. The monument rested on a foundation of about 80 square feet. You think about that. It's pretty tall. And it's exerting 10,000 pounds per square inch of pressure. And it's built on a bed of clay and sand. Now, some of you have lived in the, you know, the real south, um, and are familiar with clay and sand and know what a foundation built on clay and sand uh, will do. And as they were building it, the Washington Monument began to lean. And uh, pretty soon it was two inches off vertical and cracks began to appear. And so for 20 years, uh, they just stopped working on it. And, it. and it was there unfinished and neglected. And everyone thought the whole project was doomed to failure. 
until a colonel in the Army Corps of Engineers managed to resolve the problem and complete the work with a simple pyramid at the top so we have the monument that you know today. But for 20 years, that monument uh, to America's founding father was an unfinished, cracking, leaning tower that looked like it was going to fall over. And they fixed it by dramatically strengthening the foundation. And they did it by adding a large concrete slab around the old foundation to increase the monument's load-bearing area by over two and a half times. And today, if you go there, and they've sort of continued to reinforce it over the years, uh, multiple times. So today, the base of the foundation is 16,000 square feet with a depth of 38 feet below the lobby, and the weight of the foundation is 37,000 tons. And today it looks like it sits on the top of a small hill. Actually, that hill was built around it to help provide stability and support for the foundation. Now you're wondering, what does the Washington Monument and a good foundation have to do with 1 Corinthians 3, our text for today? Quite a bit. Um, because we're going to learn today, when it comes to the church in general, and this church in particular, and to the people of the church in general, and to you in particular, having a good foundation really matters. If what you build on it is going to last. I want to start by taking just a quick look at verse 10. If you look down uh, at verse 10, you have the whole chapter there. Here's how Paul puts it says, according to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder. Pause right there. He's not actually boasting. He's not showing off by saying, I'm the skilled guy. Um, the word's actually a technical term for what today we would probably call a project manager or maybe an architect or the principal leader on a building site. Anyway, so he says, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building on it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul's role is to lay the spiritual foundation for the church. It's the only foundation that will work. You can't lay any other. Try it and your Christian life will begin to lean and will be off-center. Cracks will start to appear. You do not build to last unless you build on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. And that's why the key word for our text today is build. We sort of have a key word for each week. Today is build. But we're not only going to talk about building, but we're going to talk even more about what keeps us from building and what keeps us from being built up. The Apostle Paul, having talked about the need for unity and uh, the role of the Holy Spirit in the church, now returns to his first concern, the damage being done by division in the church. And that's where our text starts today, with Paul's concern that division displays immaturity. Division displays immaturity. Paul finished chapter 2 with a comparison of the natural person and the spiritual person. Last week we asked the question, how should spiritual people live? And he wants the Corinthians to see that it's crazy for them to want to live according to the ways of the world when they have access to the mind of Christ. But that's exactly what they're doing. 
They're sanctified and set apart, but they're not living like it. They have access to the wisdom of God, but they're living according to the wisdom of the world. They're spiritual people, but they're acting like natural people. And Paul drives this point home in the first four verses of chapter 3. He says, But I, brothers, could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not yet ready, for you are still of the flesh. For while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh and behaving only in a human way? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? So even though they're spiritual people who had the Spirit of God, Paul says he can't address them as spiritual people. He has to address them, verse 1, as people of the flesh, as infants in Christ. When they first heard the gospel years ago, Paul fed them with milk, not solid food. And they weren't yet ready for the deeper implications of the gospel. They simply needed to start out with the basic facts that Christ crucified is what saves them from sin and death. But by now, they should be ready to move on to the deeper implications of the gospel. They should see how the gospel affects issues like sexuality and idolatry and the use of spiritual gifts. But after all these years, they're still not ready. In fact, the most basic implication of the gospel is conspicuously absent in the church. The gospel not only reconciles us to God, but it reconciles us to each other. And so they should be unified, but instead they're divided. So even though they had the spirit, they're acting in a human way, like the natural person. And it seems the Corinthians were pretty proud people. And one area they boasted in was how spiritual uh, they were. And essentially, Paul's just trying to burst their bubble. You know, I'm not sure they were real excited when they read, you're acting like infants. Um, the only reason they were saved was because of what God had done for them in Christ through the power of the Spirit. Their only reason to boast was in God. They have no reason to boast in their own uh, spiritual maturity. They're not even loving one another in the church. They're acting childish. And acting childish can be seen how they're lining up behind particular leaders, although we have no evidence that any of those leaders had actually encouraged this. And so as we've seen, there is this sort of celebrity mentality in Corinth. Uh, they want their leaders to be popular and uh, powerful speakers. They want their leaders full of the world's wisdom. And the wisdom of the day valued self-reliance and self-promotion, not unlike the wisdom of our day. But when a culture adopts a celebrity mentality, and I don't think Corinth has anything on us, but the value of humble leadership takes a back seat. And even more so when that happens in the church. Churches start looking for the latest celebrity preacher to help them become a celebrity church. They don't look for quiet shepherds who will feed the flock with the word of God. They're looking for polish and prestige. And when that happens, the church begins to boast in man and not in God. Man gets the glory. A celebrity mentality robs the church 
of the good that God wants to do in that church. There may be numerical growth. There often is. But there may be little spiritual growth. And eventually that church will be torn apart by division. Because when the focus is on man, there will always be conflict. It's exactly what's happening in Corinth. They're divided due to their own spiritual immaturity. That's not the only consequence of division. Because next we see that division reveals ignorance. Division reveals ignorance. That should be the second blank there. Ignorance is revealed. We give our favorite Christian leader the allegiance that ultimately belongs to God alone. And Paul's going to use several metaphors here to remind us in the end, uh, as we just sang, um, that it's God who gives the growth. And he begins with an agricultural metaphor that reminds us that we're the worker, not the farmer. He says, starting in verse 5, What then is Apollos? What is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. So here in verse 7, Paul says that he and Apollos aren't anything. He's using hyperboles, exaggerating some, because they are doing something. They plant, they water. This means that Paul planted the church in Corinth. He preached the gospel to them. They believed the gospel and were saved. And then Apollos came along and he watered uh, what Paul had planted. He too taught them uh, the word of God. Acts tells us that he was an eloquent uh, speaker. So God appointed them and used them to grow the church. In verse 9, Paul says, we're God's fellow workers. And so he's he's telling them, we were used by God uh, to grow his church. This is really where his agricultural metaphor shines. God uses farmers. I I realize we don't have lots of farmers among us. Um, The agricultural metaphors of the New Testament often get lost in northern Virginia. Um, But God uses farmers to cultivate a field, to plant seed in the field, to water the field. But at the end of the day, the growth of that field comes because of God. In the same way God uses Christian leaders to grow his church. But with churches, as with farms, it's God who gives the growth. As we saw last week, the gospel was given to Paul through the Spirit. It was imparted to the Corinthians by the Spirit. People aren't even able to believe the gospel without the work of the Spirit. Now, God uses people in that process, but God is the one who gives the growth. Therefore, our allegiance belongs to God. Our praise belongs to God. We don't boast in the people or in the servants. We boast in God as the one who saves us and gives us growth. But not only are we not to think too highly of these celebrity preachers, we're also not to think too highly of ourselves. We're being reminded that we're workers. We work in the field. But the field belongs to God, not to us. He's the one who gives the growth. Now, in a similar way, Paul reminds us next that we're not laying the foundation. Starting at verse 10, he says, According to the grace of God given to me like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation and someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it, 
for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. So in the first part of verse 10, <coughs> Paul basically reiterates what he's already said. He simply uses a new metaphor. Paul laid the foundation, someone else is building on it. It's pretty similar to I planted in Apollos watered. But in the last part of verse 10, he adds something new. And he admonishes us to be careful how we build. And the reason for this is our work will be judged. So this metaphor teaches us that God cares for his church, that God holds us accountable for how we build it. And this sentence gives us essentially three truths. God cares for his church, God holds us accountable, and there are different ways to build his church. I want to work through those sort of in reverse order and give you more specifics. First, we're essentially here given two options for how to build the church. We can build according to the wisdom of the gospel or the wisdom of the world. Look again at our text starting at verse 11. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest. He lists six building materials there in verse 12, which represent different ways of building on the foundation of Jesus Christ. And while there are six materials listed, they really fall into two categories, that which is going to survive the fire of judgment and that which won't. Gold, silver, precious stones will survive. Wood, hay, straw won't. So the question before us is what kind of ministry or what kind of building up of the church will survive and what won't? And I think the answer to that comes through the repetition of the word foundation that we see in these verses. In verse 10, we're told Paul laid a foundation. Verse 11, that foundation is none other than Jesus Christ. Uh, as we saw in chapter 2, is more specifically Jesus Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul taught when he was planning the church. So the foundation is the gospel of Jesus Christ. In verse 12, we learn all future work is building on that gospel foundation. Therefore, it only makes sense that the ministry that will survive judgment is a ministry that is consistent with that gospel foundation. One commentator says the reason for care and building the superstructure is related to the character of the foundation. The ministry that will survive is gospel ministry. So how does the wisdom of the world show up in the church today? What are the shoddy building materials being used that will be burned up at the last day? Uh, scholar D.A. Carson says, uh, I think, very well. He says, shoddy ministry is ministry that's built on charm personality, easy oratory, positive thinking, managerial skills, powerful and emotional experiences, and people smarts, but without 
the repeated, passionate, spirit-anointed proclamation of the gospel. Ministry that's built on self-reliance and self-promotion instead of weakness and humility is ministry built with wood, hay, and straw. When we take our eyes off the cross and focus on secondary matters, we're building with shoddy materials. When we build the church on wonderful programs that don't actually help people grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, we're building with materials that will burn. When we entertain, but we're not focused on holiness and sacrificial love, we're building the church with wood, hay, and straw. And it comes with a warning, a pretty serious warning. Look again uh, at our text, starting with verse 13. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he'll receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. The day spoken of here is judgment day, but the fire spoken of here is not hell. Paul's not saying that these people will go to hell for not working according to God's wisdom. He's saying their work will be judged. Why say that? Look again at verse 15. If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. Paul doesn't say the worker will be burned up. He says the work will be burned up. He doesn't say he'll be punished, but he'll suffer loss. He'll be deprived of something. I think that's the rewards of verse 14. And he also says he'll be saved, but only as through fire. And the assumption here is the worker is, in fact, a Christian, that he and she or she will be saved. We're not saved on the basis of how successful we are in ministry. We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So we look at... Ways of ministry that are not going to endure God's assessment. But what are enduring ways to build a church that that will endure, that will get through God's assessment? What are the gold, silver, and precious stones? Here, obviously the word of God is gold. It does the work of God. We know it won't pass away. But what we teach is not the only thing that matters. How we teach is also important. We need to teach the gospel in a way that is consistent with the gospel. We need to teach with a humility that uh, draws attention to Christ and not to ourselves. Another way to build the church is with prayer. We talked about these two things last week. If we really believe that God gives the growth, we need to ask God to use uh, our words and our work. We need to pray for the Lord to open the eyes of those inside and outside the church so they'll believe the gospel and grow in grace. We need to pray for the Lord to use his word to accomplish his work. Now, clearly, you're not reading God's word enough, and neither am I. It's probably a fair guess to say that you're not praying enough, and neither am I. After all, what's enough? And while some of you are building your lives with wood, hay, and straw, I want to stop and say that others of you are building with gold, silver, and precious stones And in many cases, you just don't realize it. You may think you're building with wood, hay, and straw. 
But when you sat caring for your aging parents through tears till they crossed the finish line in Jesus' name, ministering to them selflessly, you were building with gold, silver, and precious stones. When day after day after day for years and years you faithfully prayed for that loved one who didn't know the Lord, and no one saw that and no one knew that, the Lord saw it and the Lord knew it, and you were building with gold and silver and precious stones. When you opened your mouth and risked reputation or worse in the workplace, the neighborhood, the schoolyard, to speak up for Jesus, then you're building with gold and silver and precious stones. Listening to God in prayer and listening to God's word each require humble dependence on God. But so does mercy ministry. So does teaching our children. And so does listening to God's people as they go through all the hardships of life. All of those require a humble dependence on God as well. And when that work is done solely through self-reliance, or even worse, for self-promotion, then you're back to wood, hay, and straw, just like the Corinthians. So they're divided due to their own immaturity, and that division reveals their ignorance of the wisdom of God. But the consequences of division just keep getting worse, because next we see that division leads to deception. It leads to deceptions. We saw back in verse 5, leaders are supposed to be servants. One reason the Corinthians preferred some leaders over others was because of their love of uh, power and prestige and they value self-reliance and self-promotion. And people who sort of embody those values um, were prized among the Corinthians. The Apostle Paul is saying that Apollos, an eloquent uh, speaker, and that Paul, an apostle, are just servants. And to the Greek mind, a servant is the lowest of the low. Greeks valued the wisdom of the world, which included power and prestige and status. But hear what Paul says, starting at verse 18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. He's quoting from the Psalms. So let no one boast in men. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours, and you are Christ's, and Christ is God's. So what this means is Christians need to adopt the wisdom of God, not the wisdom of the world. They need to embrace the gospel as an all-encompassing worldview. And that involves weakness and humility. When we are weak, God is strong. When God is strong, God gets the glory, not man. And that's why Paul says in verse 21, let no one boast in men. Leaders who see themselves as servants embrace the gospel for others, not just for themselves. That's the model of the Lord. After all, we're told that he came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. It only makes sense that uh, Christians see themselves as servants. Not just the leaders in the church, but all Christians. I mean, none of us have cornered the market on truth. None of us have all the gifts. None of us have exclusive insight. None of us have ultimate authority. 
each and every one of us are to be servants of Christ. The only reason a leader is a leader at all is because Jesus assigned that task to him. He's assigned everyone in the church a task of serving the church in order to build up the body of Christ. And as we get later into Corinthians, we'll see that in great detail. Um, and the leaders are no different. They serve Christ by building up the body of Christ, which is the church. So as we've learned in Corinthians so far, gospel ministry is not just preaching the gospel. It also involves preaching and teaching the gospel in a way that's consistent with the values of the gospel. The style of ministry needs to fit the content of ministry. What you say about the gospel, about the church, about Jesus determines how you say it. When it comes to talking about the gospel, how you say it actually conveys what you think about it. And if that's true about our words, it's doubly true about our actions. Both our words and our actions need to be shaped by the cross. They need to be said and done in accordance with the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. And I think that's what Paul's talking about in verses 18 and 19. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in the age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of the world is folly with God. Paul is saying the wisdom of the world is opposed to the way of the cross. When he says, let him become a fool that he may become wise, I think he's saying uh, um, in another way, sort of building on let each one take care of how he builds upon the foundation. The only ministry that will survive is gospel ministry. And why is that important? To answer that question, let me jump back to those verses I skipped over. I know you noticed that I skipped over a few. Um, because again, we're not the farmer and we're not laying the foundation. But according to our passage, we are the field, the building, the temple. The, uh, verse 9, you are God's field, God's building. Jumping to verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. You remember, he's talking to the church. He's not writing to an individual. Another reason that we don't give uh, specific leaders, no matter how good they are or how big a celebrity they are, our allegiance that belongs to God alone is because the church itself belongs to God. The end of verse 9 makes that uh, plain. It says you are God's field, God's building. The church doesn't belong to any particular person. It belongs to God. He purchased it with the precious blood of his only son. Christ laid down his life for the church. And no matter how good a Christian leader they are, no person should ever be given the allegiance that belongs to God alone. Why does God care so much for his church that he demands it be built properly? It's because the church is God's temple. That's plain in verses 16 and 17. Do you not know that you are God's temple? And it ends with God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Everything we've been learning about building the church has to do with building the local church and the local church is the temple of the holy God. 
this analogy of being God's temple is actually used several different ways by the Apostle Paul. There's a sense in which Christ himself is the new temple of God. He's the great meeting place now between God and man. There's a sense in which us uh, as individual Christians are the temple of God. We'll see that when we get to chapter 6. But there's another sense in which the church is the temple of God. And in verse 17, we learn that the church is holy. It's set apart. Remember, the whole reason that Paul's writing to the church in Corinth is because way too much of Corinth has gotten into the church. They're supposed to be set apart from the world, but instead of simply living in the world, they were living as though they were of the world. They're adopting the wisdom of the world in the church and not the wisdom of God. And as a result, the glory is going to various men instead of to God. God is holy and worthy of all praise and glory. When the church reflects God's holiness, it reflects God. And when it reflects God, then God is glorified. And that happens, as verse 16 says, because the Holy Spirit is in the church. God dwells with his people through the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is at work in God's people. He not only enables their belief in the gospel, he wants them to, tra to transform uh, the people into people who actually reflect the gospel. Part of that work has to do with the way they view themselves, the way they view each other, the way they view their leaders. They need to reflect the gospel as do their leaders. They need to put aside the desire for self-reliance and self-promotion, as do their leaders. They need to see their weakness and humbly depend on God, as do their leaders who need to see the we their weakness and humbly depend on God as they preach and teach the gospel. When they do this, when these things happen in the church, they'll stop boasting in men and begin boasting in God. But it's not only the glory of God that's at stake. When we serve God's church in God's way, it's also for the good of the church. A church that's set apart won't be torn apart like the church in Corinth. A church that's led according to the wisdom of God will be healthier than a church that's led according to the wisdom of the world. So we see that serving God's church in God's way gives glory where it belongs to God. Let me finish where I started. I began by telling you about building the Washington Monument. And since they hadn't laid a proper foundation at first, the building started to lean and crack. It's actually a pretty good metaphor for the Christian life. It's helpful because it's basic, and if I can say it, it's foundational. Oh, it wasn't that bad. This is the beginning of the Christian life. You get this wrong, and whatever else you build will eventually come down. The only secure foundation for your life is Jesus Christ. So let me ask, what are you building your life on? There are some of us who are building our lives on a moral foundation. We have a strong work ethic. We strive to treat others as we wish to be treated. We pride ourselves on the nobility of our motives. And we feel quite assured that if there is a God at all, surely he holds us in high esteem. Others of us perhaps have built our lives on the attempt to win approval. First from mom and dad, then from our peer groups, uh, perhaps at school or work. The great animating principle that directs our efforts is the affirmation and praise of others. 
And then there's some, I think, particularly in today's uh, day and age, who kind of live in a make-believe world of their own invention. We bury ourselves in the sand, more likely we bury ourselves online, to avoid facing reality or taking responsibility. Our response to problems is to run and hide, duck and cover. And to drown out our stress, uh, we, uh, we drown out our stresses with entertainment or with materialism or with self-medication <coughs> or with all three to hope that somehow it all just goes away. Paul is telling us very clearly that whatever we're building on, if it's not the foundation of Jesus Christ, cracks will start to appear. Only Jesus can take the weight, unmoving, solid, secure, until we get to that place where we can truly say and honestly mean, on Christ, the solid rock I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Till we get to that point, we'll find our lives listing and leaning, and the cracks will appear. You're not built to bear the full weight of your own life. Only Jesus can take that weight. So I ask again, what are you building on? What are you resting on? What are you leaning on? For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And if that's true for you, then this is a promise of God for you. All things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ and Christ is God. And it all depends on having the right foundation. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I will close. Let's pray together. Our Lord and our God, thank you that you have spoken to us once again by your Son. Open our eyes that we might see our sin and our self-reliance and our self-promotion and then see our Savior. We confess that we fail to pay attention to your word, trading it for the wisdom of the world often without even thinking about it. Forgive us for being too willing to build with poor products, wood, hay, and straw. Help us to build with gold and silver and precious stones that our work might make much of Jesus. Teach us by your spirit to listen to the word of God once again. And by it, may you do a powerful work in making us a people who build our lives on the only sure foundation that is Jesus Christ our Lord. So look at us as a church. We pray in mercy. Forgive us. Work in these weeks and months ahead of us through 1 Corinthians. Teach us who we really are in Jesus. Strengthen us as we seek to Live these words out for your glory and our good as we begin to be changed by the gospel. Grant that we may live like people called to be saints, united in fellowship, discerning spiritual truths as spiritual people, 
and building both our lives and our church on Christ the solid rock. And so we ask all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. From 2 Thessalonians. That's good. I got the right one. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you. Lunch is down the hall. <laughs>